Vegas is an internationally recognized food destination, so naturally we've attracted some wonderful food writers. When Heidi Napronella, food and restaurant critic at the Review Journal, retired, Jonathan Wright immediately applied to be their next restaurant reporter. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, Jonathan and I will talk about some of the rumors he's heard about the Vegas food scene and the classic style a good martini exudes. It's Thursday, August 18th, 2022. I'm Vogue Robinson, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. So you just moved from Reno to Las Vegas. What drew you to Las Vegas? What made you move? Well, I covered food for a number of years up in Reno and Tahoe and the wine country and uh, uh, San Francisco sometimes and Portland, Oregon sometimes. But for years, I would always look at Heidi Natmarnella and see if she had retired. <laughs> like for, for several years, a couple times a year, I would Google. I would read her stuff and I would see like if there's hints she's retiring. Because mm. Vegas is an exciting city. And this is one of the best cities in the whole world to cover food and drink, right? Exactly. Like, this is a plum gig here, right? It's one of the best in food writing in America. And then one day she was retiring and the job was open and I applied. Nice. So you've been, you've been circling us like, I have. like a hawk. Does that sound weird? Like a vulture. I mean, I watched for many years. It's horrible probably to wish the retirement on the woman. I don't know her. I'm sure she's very nice, but I kept checking. No, I mean, you know what? I feel like if you know what your your dream job is or one of your major goals is, it's good to look. Like even for me, community colleges, people tend to stay in those positions for a very long time if they're being treated well. So you're a food writer. You got to Vegas, this mecca for (laughs) this dream that you had, you know, been circling. Where was the first place you went to eat out here? The second night I was in Vegas, I met a friend who was down here for business and she gave me two choices. She's like, well, we can either go to the Caviar Bar at Resorts World, which, you know, today I would be like, we're going. But I, I didn't feel quite up to that on my second night here. So we went to that place called Shaolong Dumplings in Chinatown. And it specializes in Shaolong Bao, which some people call soup dumplings, which is not technically correct, but that's what they're called in the U.S. by a lot of people. So we went there. And then afterwards we went and had a... Glass of wine at the English Hotel on Main Street, Todd Englishes. So that is where I went. And then since then, my marching orders from the RJ are just, first of all, you need to get to know the Strip because it's important here. While you're getting to know the Strip, you also, by the way, need to get to know the rest of Vegas too. So that's what I've been doing. Nice. I don't think I've been to either of those places, so now I've got some things on my list. What have you heard about Vegas food that isn't true? about the Vegas food scene? Hmm. Well, I have been been to Vegas many times over the years as a tourist, so I knew it that way. But I did not know Vegas off-strip how the scene has grown in the past 10 years. And, of course, I I knew Lotus of Sam because everyone in the whole world knows Lotus of Sam. But, right, but that is very possibly the most famous restaurant in Vegas not owned or not on the Strip. It may be the most famous restaurant in Vegas. 
but I did not know that there was such a rich food community off the Strip. One that now I have been told and have discovered has really taken root in the last decade as all these chefs trained at famous places on the Strip go into the neighborhoods to open their own places. Yeah, the chef that owns Black Sheep. Jamie Tran. Yeah, Jamie Tran. I do think the the sprawl of the city works against the food community in some ways because it gives people pause to go try somewhere when it's way across town. Mm-hmm. Like, I've been to the Black Sheep, but I live on the east side up like... Just, you know, south of downtown, I guess it's called Winchester. So, you know, south of downtown, mm-hmm. east of the Strip. For me to go to Black Sheep is like a 50-minute drive. Yep. Yep. For real. Yeah. Yeah. You've definitely, for me, hit the mark on it. But also, I don't know, I think of it as an adventure. So it's like, it makes going out to eat to somewhere new definitely even more of an occasion. But we do have to plan. Like, we're going to go Yes, you do have yonder. to plan. <laughs> And someone has to drive or you have to get ready to fork out for the Uber or and I do want to explore North Las Vegas more, which I don't think probably gets enough attention. So I need to get my haul my chicken thighs up there and see what's what up there. Absolutely. What have you heard about the Vegas food scene that is true? Those restaurants on the Strip are truly superlative. Many of them Mm. that you can get anything you want. I mean, it's somewhere right on the Strip. I have had some truly splendid things, especially the high-end Chinese places, because Chinese is my specialty in food writing, one of them, or Asian cooking. And the high-end Cantonese places on the Strip are the equal of anything in Hong Kong or elsewhere. And I've traveled extensively in Asia. They are really wonderful. I wish people, more people would go to them because they could see what Chinese food can be and that it's not just the takeout most Americans are used to. Wow. I had no idea that there were high-end Cantonese restaurants. Wing Lei, Michelin star, red plate in the Cosmopolitan, taking Chinese food in new directions. And then, of course, for more traditional regional things, Chinatown is wonderful, too. For sure. Yeah, it's, I'm glad we have good Chinese food here in Vegas. Absolutely. I wouldn't really live anywhere that didn't have at least a few decent Chinese places. And I don't mean General So's chicken. <laughs> right. Why do you think that so many Americans, we only have this viewpoint that's just, oh, it's takeout, it should be fast, it should be quick, it should be cheap? There's been some scholarly studies on this question. And I won't bore everyone, but some of it has to do with patterns of immigration. The regions of China they came from, the types of foods they brought with them and how they had to adapt to American ingredients. Chinese people have widely immigrated in the United States. So, and what do people do when they get to a new country? What business can they set up? They can cook the food of their homelands. So they open a restaurant. Some of it has to do also with a kind of ingrained prejudice that Mexican food also suffers from Mm. that says that certain cuisine should be cheap and certain ones we should pay a lot for. And that is ongoing in the food world. And that is something I always try to fight against. Because, I mean, okay, not every, you know, food tradition is, you know, like French cuisine. But every culinary tradition has dishes that are higher end 
celebratory. And every tradition has those everyday things we all cook at home or the things we grab and go. So just recognizing that I think is very important. Even if it's an everyday dish, right? I don't know. I can't make pancit. Uh, I need somebody's auntie <laughs> to make that for me. So I think if it is something that I cannot make, then I think that that it deserves respect because someone has taken the time to learn these ingredients, shift them, move them, you know, infuse them with flavor uh, in a way that maybe I don't know or using oils that I don't normally cook with. Oh, so yes. I, I'll cut the check for some food like that. Food is always my problem when I look at my budget. <laughs> oh, it's like Thai cooking. Incredibly complex and labor intensive. Incredibly, if people just only knew. I've always thought that Thai food, for what it gets charged in the U.S., never recouses on the back end the labor that goes into it. Now, that's that's a traditional way of making Thai. Right now, there you know every restaurant there are packet shortcuts now in the world, but the traditional way of making Thai food or Vietnamese food, oh my word. Or Indian food, roasting all those spices and grinding, grinding, grinding. Hello. I'd be tired. I'm like, oh, I need, the, I literally, I'll put no. the oil in. I'm like, okay, I have to, what is, I, why can't I remember the word? But you have to heat up the spices. You got to activate these bows. Yes. Activate you the spices. You got to right. the esters or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I heard you like martinis. Why do you like martinis? <laughs> well, number one, because my grandmother Wright liked martinis and had a picture of martinis every day for evening cocktails for probably most of her life. And she lived to be 100. I like martinis because you can probably get a martini everywhere on earth, in every bar in the world, right? Might not be the best martini, but you can get it. As opposed to someone who's super hipster, like I love Aperols from this region of Italy. Like you're gonna be disappointed if you're traveling a lot of places, right? Outside of certain cities. You're not gonna be able to indulge your whim for Aperol. Martini, on the other hand, is everywhere. Also, it's like a little black dress. It's the beauty of a classic form. Very chilled with a little garnish in the right glass. And it always tastes good and looks good. Yeah. And you're never lonely if you have a martini. I only drink like five things. Coffee, sparkling wine, water, martinis, and white wine. This is a healthy diet of beverages. <laughs> yeah, yes. The, yeah, yes, it is. And one good one you've had in town. So far. I've actually had several good ones. But at that bar called Atomic on what street is that? Um, it's Fremont Street. Yeah. It's yeah Fremont. They were very big, which is important to me. Very cold, made just the way I asked. And the bartender was very nice. And they were really reasonable. So I had four. <laughs> Not I had four. <laughs> a full-time grown-up. I love that. So let's uh, let's get into the nitty-gritty things. Um, we're playing around with the title of where can a guy get a good New York slice of pizza in Vegas? But the answer is in New York, though. <laughs> you know, I uh, have been hunting for good pizza in Vegas. And, you know, apologies to all the pizza. And I haven't tried that many, but I used to live in New York. So I have a very specific idea of what pizza is. And I have not yet found that in Vegas, but I'm sure it must be here. <laughs> For sure. So what do you hope to bring to the Vegas food writing scene? Well, number one, good writing <laughs> and, you know, rigor, but also curiosity and celebrating all aspects of, of the city. Mm -hmm. And of course, finding what's new 
being first to share that because I am a journalist, so we are competitive in like scoops. Anyone listening, PR people, call me first. <laughs> and to be a service to the readers. Yeah. And so what do you mean by that? What's, what's the role of the food writer in the community? Well, this is just me. I have a, a slightly different take that is not traditionally journalistic. I mean, part of the role is to just inform the readers of whatever you're informing them about. What's new? What's worthy of attention? What's overlooked? What might be an, a problem? What's sustaining in the community? What's innovative in food and drink? I also feel that to use the platform to help the food community. Mm. Like if a food bank ever contacts me and they say, you know, we need the help getting the word out about this, I am right there. I am right there for any food program that assists people who are hungry, that even one person in this country goes to bed hungry is not good. I have lived in other places where hunger, where people are hungry as a matter of course. Americans have no idea, many of us, how fortunate we are, even as we struggle, even as these times are challenging. So I am always there to assist organizations fighting hunger. I also feel like I want to support to the extent that I can, while also being clear-eyed, the restaurant and bar community in general. We all love to go out to eat and drink, but it is a very hard way to make a living. You don't see me working in a restaurant because I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. My hat and respect every day, all day, all year to the people who work in hospitality and show all of us a good time. Absolutely. So I'm always here to support them, too, in whatever way I can. Do you think that a food writer should also hold the food industry accountable? I've been asked this before. I could give you the answer I'm sure they want me to give, or I could give you what I feel. As far as our journalistic project goes, it is not my area of expertise or talent to be an investigative reporter. Just for me personally, those kinds of stories, I would want to be handled by my colleagues on the investigative side because, number one, they have the expertise and skills to really do it justice, and number two, there is no question they have any conflicts of interest, potential or otherwise. I mean, you cannot be a good food writer without being friends with chefs, okay? Unless you're going to be a totally anonymous food critic, which there are no more of those anymore. I think the only like major media outlets that still have a food critic are what? The New York Times and maybe the San Francisco Chronicle. And the, I think the Seattle newspaper still might. But most we don't have one anymore at the RJ, right? I wasn't hired to do that. So the, to do my job well, I have to be part of the food community. Well, then, of course, that always brings up the questions of interests and loyalties. That said, I would never ignore, if I had to my own knowledge, something improper going on at a restaurant. And I don't mean like the employees are angry that day. That's not improper. I mean, we all don't like our jobs <laughs> from day to day. True. I will tell you there... I, and I'm not allowed, unfortunately, to just give you specifics. But I will tell you there was one well-known person on the strip with a new restaurant that we declined to cover because this person's behavior 
was so well known to be problematic that if we had started to write one sentence, we would have had to undertake an investigation. And it had already been started to be covered by other outlets, so we didn't feel we were abdicating any responsibility, but we didn't feel we could at all be ethical and write about this person sort of generically. But if I found, you know, if I found to my own knowledge something bad going on, I would refer it to my colleagues on the investigative and hard news side. And then there is, it's more of a philosophical question. It's probably, it's not a very fashionable question these days, but it has to be asked about any realm of human endeavor. To what extent does the product of creation stand on its own, separate and apart from its creator? And and that is a philosophical question we could debate till the end of the universe. Yes, we had a staff meeting and we got into that. And then I was like, you guys, we have stuff to do. This is a lifelong discussion about separating the art from the artist. You know, Derrida would say that absolutely you do, that the text stands alone, that the text has its own internal logic, that the text is about what it purports to be about, and the text is not about the writer. People who are in the social justice movements would say they are inextricably linked and bound up together, and that one interrogates the other. And really, like you said, we could debate this till the last, uh, you know, proton disappeared from the universe. For sure. And we would be talking about God and the proton. (laughs) (laughs) We separate God from the proton. (laughs) Um, So just to close things out with something different and simpler, what's the next place you want to go eat? I am hunting for a type of Chinese food that I love that I don't think is much in Vegas. I I really love the cooking of the Uyghur people who unfortunately are now being oppressed is too light of a word by the, the Chinese government. But the Uyghur people have a wonderful school of cooking. Many of them are Muslim, so it's halal. Oh. Their specialty is um, lamb, of course, and um, certain kinds of breads. There was a restaurant I used to love called Red Rose in Beijing. It was um, a little touristy, but it was famous for Xinjiang food, for the Uyghur cooking. It closed during the pandemic. I've searched around to see what I could bring up through the restaurant searches. I haven't actually visited. I'll know the moment I taste the food, whether it's what I'm looking for. It looks like there might be one or two Chinese halal restaurants in Las Vegas, but I'll have to see what they mean by that. And I'll know that when I taste the food and look at the menu. Mm, You know it when you taste it. Right. Jonathan Wright, thank you so much for being on CityCast Las Vegas today. Well, yes, thank you. It was very enjoyable. Yes. And I will get a martini in your honor. Now it's news time. Monsoon season isn't just raising the water levels in Lake Mead. It's also cooling us down. There have only been six triple-digit days. (laughs) The previous record for fewest triple-digit days in August was 14. Fingers crossed we have a nice and cool transition into the fall. Siegfried and Roy entertained on the Strip and on their vast property here in Vegas. What remains of their residence is scheduled to be torn down and new housing will be developed by the Kalita Group. They plan to build a 334-unit apartment complex on the 12-acre parcel. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. 
If you got your next restaurant recommendations from this conversation, tell a friend and take them out. Don't forget to also rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with our Friday News Roundup. Talk soon. (laughs) Now it's news time. (laughs) It's like morphin' time, but it's news time.